Hello, you're listening to the Carrero Podcast. This is Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. We would like to introduce you to our new journal website. It's called CarreroJournal.org, spelled K-O-R-E-R-O Journal.org. And you can go there and see that we are making a call for articles and papers. And what we'd like to do is invite you as educators or researchers or even your students to write up and contribute to our online journal. And you can see the submission guidelines there. And also, I would like to point you to our edxglobal.org website. And there you can see all of the great projects that our students are working on and our initiatives globally. And you can also make a donation through Venmo, PayPal, with your credit card, and get a tax-exempt ID. So again, edxglobal.org to see what our students and we are up to globally, and Carrero Journal to see our new online journal initiative. Thank you so much. Today our guest is Dr. Sarah Sisher. She is a double board certified psychiatrist trained to treat psychiatric issues across the lifespan, including early development, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. She strives to take an integrative whole person approach and offers a variety of services, including assessment and diagnosis, psychopharmologically psychotherapy, and a combination of therapy and medication management in her practice. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you share with us what it was like being Sarah as a young child going through your K-12 education? Okay. Yeah, good morning. I'm, uh, first off, thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so I grew up in Peoria, Illinois. I went to public school K through eighth grade there. And then when I was in ninth grade, I went to a private boarding school in on the East Coast. Um, and so I had this sort of really big shift at that point in my education. And, um, you know, up to eighth grade, I was in, like I said, it was like a public, it was a gifted program, public school, really smart kids, but not sort of academically, not highly academically competitive. And so when I was in ninth grade, that was the first time I was kind of exposed to that environment. Yeah, I was a diligent, kind of dutiful student, so I, I think I thrived in that in certain ways. Um, but then, like when I look back, I can see that, especially with kind of what I do now and the kids that I work with now, I can see how there's some real negative sides of that sort of like college-oriented, university-oriented, um, competitive academic environment. So as like a 14-year-old going to the East Coast, was that a bit of a culture shock for you? Yeah, totally. Um, so I, I like forget all this stuff. Um, but I remember back then, and even like in my 20s, when I would tell people I went to boarding school, they were like, what did you do wrong? Like you know, their, their, yeah. assumption, their assumption was like that I was – that I was like a problem kid and had to be like sent away. And that's not, that's not what happened. Like my dad is from the East coast. Originally he had gone to a boarding school. He was familiar with that world. Um, and so it was, it was presented as an option. It was not, if I had said I didn't want to go, I didn't have to go. Um, but it was presented as an option as a 14 year old kid. It was sort of this like cool fantasy, like East coast, New York city, 
like what you see on TV kind of thing. Yeah. Yes, totally. Um, so yeah. I was I was very excited to go. Although when I look back now also, 14 is young. And I work with a lot of 14-year-olds. And I like mm-hmm. was a child. And at the time, you know, there was something sort of like precocious. And it, that's hard for me to wrap my head around. So I was, you know, quite young. What were, what were some of the, if, if you could re, re, remember that far back, what were some of the things that you really had to adjust with or, or adjust to. Yeah. Um, homework. I feel like I had, I don't know if this is like, I don't know if this is like a, I don't remember having a lot of homework in like sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Okay. I just don't. I mean, I'm sure I had some and I like remember my parents being like, you have to get your homework done before you can watch TV, like that sort of stuff. But I don't remember it being um, like a thing. Like it, it doesn't spark in my mind as like a thing that had to be done. And then by the time I got to high school, there was like a set study hour and we had like actual homework and it was kind of much more structured in a way that I wasn't totally used to. Um Culture, I mean, just coming from like a kind of mid-sized Midwestern town into this kind of elite, or I don't even know if I'd call it elite. I think like driven to be elite environment um, was a pretty big shock. Yeah. I imagine that um, just being away from your family and your parents for extended periods of time at that young of an age would have been a culture shock for me. Like most people don't get that experience until college Mm -hmm. and your parents must have had a like a strong sense of like yeah you can handle this to do that um you must have been pretty I guess independent because I think that that requires a lot of independence early on yeah no for sure and so my I have two brothers an older brother and younger brother they both went to the same school okay um and yeah, I think we, the three of us were and are kind of independent. And um, at the same time, I don't think I realized, again, I don't think I realized at the time how kind of young I was to, yeah. Be, yeah. to be doing that. Um, so it's hard for me. Like I have two kids now and I'm like, I don't know if I'd be able, like when they're 14, I don't know if I'd be able to like trust them to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So, so then during your, during your high school years and where, where was this boarding school? In Connecticut. Oh, okay. Um, was there, was there anything during that time that, that sparked you to go, go on to this professional path in which, in which you're, um, in which you're now on? trying to think. So I come from a family of physicians. My grandfathers on both sides are were, they're passed away now, were doctors. My father's a doctor. My mom was a nurse. Um, I think I always wanted to, to do something in medicine. I was, I, I'm kind of loath to say this because I actually don't know if it's totally true, but I was not good at math or science. Um, <laughs> We didn't didn't go into the female stereotype, though. (laughs) Totally. That's why I'm, like, hesitant to say. Actually, clearly I was okay enough. Yeah, that's right. um, But it was not my strong suit. I was much more like a humanities. I was an English major in college. Like, that's 
where my kind of academic strengths were. And it was harder for me to do the like math and science stuff. Um, and so I'm trying to think the question about high school. I don't know if in, I feel like it started before high school that I kind oh, okay. of was interested in doing something in medicine. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Okay. Um, and then you went to, well, was now as a former high school teacher, I'm, I think I spend too much asking questions about people's high school lives. <laughs> so, so I'll, was, were, were there, how, how was high school life? Um, did you play sports? Were you part of clubs? Did you, yeah. you know, um, tell me who Sarah was her freshman year and then how that changed <laughs> to your senior <laughs> Oh, Lord. I don't even know how to answer that. Um, so I am somebody, you can't totally see me, but I look athletic, but I'm highly uncoordinated. So I, like, wanted to join sports, but I wasn't very good at them. Okay. Um, so maybe, like, my junior year, I stopped doing sports, except for track. I'm really tall, and I did high jump. Oh, nice. Okay. So I, like, stayed with that. But I sort of moved towards more kind of art stuff. Um, I did a lot of pottery in the last few years in high school. Um, oh, cool. And what was I like? I don't know. I don't <laughs> it's hard for me to have a perspective on it. Um, I think I probably seemed more confident than I actually was. I think that's a normal um, thing, though, right? Like high schoolers, yeah. they put on that confident facade, but really yeah. they're just trying to be the person they want to be. Yeah, totally. Yes, yeah. totally. And especially in an environment where I was like, this is, you know, when you're, when you're that young, like geographical, cultural differences yeah. are a big deal. And so I a little bit felt like a fish out of water and yep. um, felt, I'm, I think, quite good at reading people. Um which is, I guess, part of what I do now. Um, but even then, I think I was. And so kind of reading the environment, reading people, trying to, like, figure that out. I think I was always pretty attuned to that. Um, I want to know more about that. So how do you use that that skill set that you, I, I'm hearing you say, is somewhat mm. innate in you of reading mm. people? Uh, so, like, when did you know that it was a gift? And how do you currently use that in your work right now? You guys are asking some interesting questions. So, <laughs> like I so I, like I said, I have two brothers. So I grew up in this, uh, you know, mostly male household, and I was the sensitive kid. Like I was like always too sensitive, um, and so I didn't. For a long time, I felt like my sort of. I don't know that I'm that emotion. I can't be emotionally reactive, but I think I'm much more kind of. Um, tuned in and pick up on things and sometimes incorrectly, I'm sure. But I think I always have been that way. The little like antenna is up. And so when I was younger, it was, I remember sort of feeling like it was not a good thing um, necessarily. And I don't know. When did I start feeling like it was a good thing? Maybe somewhere along in college. I don't know. I don't have like a specific event where I was like, oh yeah, the light bulb goes on. And I'm like, oh, this is actually like a superpower. Um, that probably happened more along in my training, like as I went through residency and stuff where I was like, oh yeah, like a lot of this, um, a lot of what I do in my practice comes 
kind of innately um, and intuitively um, I'm kind of just picking up on people and tuning into what's going on with them and observing things. And, and so, and so when did you, when you went to your undergrad, that was in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did you go in as like a psychology major or did you, what, how, how did this trajectory work? And I, and I'm, and I'm asking for obvious that, that, that I'm, that I'm interested, but we, but we also have um, a lot of high school listeners um, that, that are always, they're kind of anxious about what am I going to be when I go up? 100%. Oh yeah. Yes, and I was one of those anxious <laughs> high schoolers um, feeling a lot of pressure to figure it all out. Um, so I was not pre-med. I went in, I was an English major. I studied French. I did like a lot of sculpture. Uh, I, again, like I said, I was like, kind of scared of uh, like core science stuff. Sure. And maybe like my sophomore year junior I was like yeah like this sort of thing about like I want to be a doctor but I don't believe in myself or I I feel like I just don't have the the like skills to be able to do it um I was like I'm gonna take gen chem and like see how it goes and gen chem went horribly I got like a I think I ended up getting like a c maybe or something it's something where I was like god I feel like was really kind of upset and disappointed about it and then I kind of I was like I that's not for me I can't do it. And at that point, then I was like, oh, maybe I'll go to midwifery school. Um, so I was thought about being a midwife. And I, don't, I actually think midwifery school is, like, quite competitive. I don't know. In my head at the time, I was like, maybe that's, like, a less competitive, intense thing. I actually think, again, and, you know, in retrospect, I, sure. I think it's probably that was not a correct assumption. But um, and then around the end of my junior year, I I don't know what happened. I don't, I can't like, there wasn't like an event that happened, but it was something in me that was just like, I have to try to do the stuff to apply for med school. Um, And so I started taking more pre-med classes at the very end of college. And so I ended up, I graduated, uh, like I said, with an English major. And then I stayed for an extra year after graduation to like take all of the rest of the classes um, and where I went to college was very competitive for pre-med, like yeah. very competitive. Um, and I think that also was sort of a, for somebody who like didn't, I did not have a traditional path into it. Right. Um, I wasn't a bio major. I wasn't, um, kind of naturally confident in those sorts of classes, um, I'm actually, I'm competitive in certain ways, but like, I'm not actually that academically competitive. Um, It all just felt like super overwhelming. And so I ended up, wait, I forget what the question was. What was your question? (laughs) (laughs) Just how, how you got here, you know, during your, during your undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess my, oh, so to like high school students who feel like they have to figure it out. Yes. You don't have to figure it out. And whatever plan you have um, or you think that you have does not necessarily have to be the full plan. And also, kind of on the other side of it, I feel like there used to be, and maybe it's a generational thing, but like with my parents' generation, I feel like the message was like, you find what you do and you do that for the rest of your life. 
like you get a job and like, that's the job that you have. And that's not the way the world is at all anymore. Yeah. And people pivot and people reinvent themselves and people realize that things aren't a good fit. And it took me a really long time to realize that. Um, and so I feel like that's what I would have wanted, you know, my earlier self to know that like a career is a long thing and it can go lots of different places and it does not have to be a straight line. Um, and the pressure of like having to figure out when you're 19, what you're going to be doing when you're 60 is crazy. You don't know what you're going to be like when you're 60. Right. And, and most of the time when you're a 17 year old kid, you don't even know what you want for lunch, let alone what you're going to do with the rest of your life. So when you're picking a major, when you're entering college, it's uh, pretty wild. And of course, you know about, you know, brain development and all of that for, for kids. They're not fully developed when they're graduating college, let alone when they're picking a major, which is, which is probably why we have, you know, super seniors in college and, you know, people drop out and people switch majors. That's just, you know, part of growing up and, figuring it all out. And we put a lot of pressure on kids to do that. And also mm-hmm. it's super expensive, right? Yes. Like, yes. That's part of that pressure is like college is so expensive. I need to make sure I know what I'm doing before I start. But Oh yeah. I mean, now I have, I have like a 10 year old patients who talk about being worried about getting into college. Oh, oh wow. my gosh. Yeah. Like I think it starts so young. Yikes. Uh, where do you think that comes from? Like, as a, like, I'm not a parent, but like, if I were a parent, like, talking about college to my children at a young age, is that, is that harmful? Like, putting that pressure on them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or is so it like, I, or, or, I don't know. I mean, there, I'm sure there's a balance somewhere, right? But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's funny. I have this conversation a lot, actually. Um, because I think having expectations and having um, goals and um, even sort of like standards for kids is important in certain ways. Because the message is, I believe in you. Yeah. I think you're smart and I think you can do hard things. And those are important messages for kids to get. Um, I I think part of it is cultural. I think we're sort of like just culturally conditioned at this point, this sort of elite competitive college stuff is so pervasive. Um, And so I think in some ways I feel like parents' jobs, I don't know. I, I, I think that what you said is right, that there's a balance. I think having, I, I think having no expectations and sort of no goals is not a solution. Um, but having really explicit discussions about, um, you know, what are actually the metrics for success? What are actually, like, how do you actually me- measure success for yourself? And that it doesn't have to do with the name of the college you get into. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, because because even even that even trying to talk to high school students when they can't even comprehend reasoning, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you're and you're trying to talk to them about about visions and goals and stuff, yeah. um, because as a 
um, I, I taught both at a, at a private high school and then an inner, inner city public school. And it was quite, quite the same. They just, they just wanted to get by, um, you know, but then there's the, there, there is, there, there are a lot of kids that really feel that, that pressure. But one of the things that, that I found is that they didn't know why they felt this pressure. Um, in order to go on. I mean, I'm, you know, I work with families now telling them about, um, you know, why do you want to put your kids in, in AP courses when you could just put them in a dual, in dual enrollment courses with the, you know, with the local junior college, and then they don't have to take this high stakes test. <laughs> and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, you, you know, it's, it's AP. And it's yeah. like, it doesn't matter, um, you know. So, you know, yeah. And, and, and I think we could we could talk a lot about that. Um, and and I'm sure with this pandemic going going on, um, can you can you talk about that because you because you mainly do you mainly work with kids is or or is it is it kind of broad. So it's pretty broad. Uh, the youngest I do right now is like seven because I, I switched to doing everything remotely in March of, you know, when the pandemic started yeah. or when we went into lockdown. Um, so I'd say my youngest is like seven, eight. And then I'd say the bulk of my patients are under 24 years old. And then I have, I treat some adults, but okay. I think my oldest patient's like, so can you say their sixties maybe? So can you can you talk about that with the marker of being March of twenty twenty? Um, kind of the before and after. Are there are there common themes that were that, that were going on prior and then mm-hmm. after March of twenty twenty? Yeah. yeah. So obviously I have a biased sample size, right? Um, <laughs> and there are. I feel like I'm trying to form what I'm trying to say because there's so much I want to say about this. Um, I feel like there was this sort of kind of odd evolution of this, especially for kids who have anxiety, where at the beginning they were actually like, oh, yeah, like I don't have to be exposed to all of that stuff that was making me anxious, especially kids who have like socially oriented anxiety and um, maybe kind of social interpersonal stuff at school is stressful for them. That this sort of like weird relief of like, I don't have to be in school and I can do zoom. And for kids who were sort of self-motivated and I feel like they actually adjusted quite well to, to remote learning. Um, and then I had other subsets of kids where they were very, high achievers, good students, and got a lot of validation from being in an in-person school. And when that was pulled away, that was actually the thing that was hardest um, because their sort of source of feeling okay about themselves, getting good grades, getting told by teachers that they're good students, but whatever it is, whatever like reflection back to them that they were okay um, was either gone or changed. And those kids, I feel like some of those kids have had a really hard time. Um, oh. 
And then, you know, now at this point, as things are starting to open up and, and schools are starting to go back in person, I feel like there's this whole other wave of like anxiety around that, even though people can acknowledge that it's a good thing. Um, but I've had a lot of a lot of teenagers talk about how that's actually like really anxiety provoking and that they've adjusted to this kind of remote world and, mm-hmm. um, and that the thought of going back is actually really anxiety provoking. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and an interesting perspective, you know, from what you're dealing with, because you are seeing a lot of students with anxiety where maybe you wouldn't necessarily see students or, you know, children with that are just not, and I don't mean just as to like diminish it, but just dealing with um, issues of isolation or issues Mm -hmm. of, you know, just feeling maybe lonely um, Mm -hmm. during this, you know, students who might be a little bit more social. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I get the anxiety piece, certainly. I mean, it can come up out of anywhere based on anything, right? Like just the fact that we're in a worldwide pandemic can bring on anxiety just alone and then couple it with students who are trying to figure out their futures and how what they're doing Mm -hmm. in online school is going to affect getting them into college. And I read that colleges aren't requiring the SAT and the ACTs for next year because Mm -hmm. of just not having been able to offer those tests. And Mm -hmm. I can imagine that some of those students who are having anxiety just about what college they're going to get into and whether or not they're going to get into it, you know, when they're 10, that still manifests in those students who are 17 and trying to pick, pick schools. Oh yeah. Also there's been this, I haven't thought about it, but I've, I've talked to a number of people about it. This really, a lot of grief around the fact that, um, that there's a certain group of kids that had expectations about what it was going to be like to go look at colleges, to apply to college, like this sort of like excitement and they've been working towards it for years and years and years. And that process got just totally lost. Um, And it's different and they can, you know, we have a lot of conversations about like accepting getting to acceptance, but it really is a grief process. Like it really, I think for a lot of these students was something they had worked towards for years and then they were not able to have that experience. And then just not even having that culminating experience of getting a graduation at the end of their Uh school year and celebrating that. Kind of odd, anticlimactic, just a very strange ending to a really big part of people's lives. Yeah. Because I'm also thinking for, for parents, I mean, they, they may have been planning this trip with their, with their child, that this is going to be our time. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to go to the Midwest and check out eight colleges within 12 days. Yep. And we're going to have a great time and blah, blah, blah. And um, yeah, I, I didn't, you know, I never thought about that, but there's a lot mm-hmm. going on. Um, how... So then talk about you, how, and this isn't like a therapy session, right? This, this, this isn't what we're, what we're trying to do, but as a, as a professional, how, how, have, and as a parent, how, how have you adjusted? Yeah. 
So I um, had actually, I haven't been in practice. I had opened my practice really in like January, 2020. Wow. And then in March, this like giant pivot happened, (laughs) right? And I had patients scheduled on like a Tuesday and Wednesday, I transitioned to doing everything remotely. And it was just this like, literally overnight switch. Um, And what ended up happening is I uh, went and lived next door to my parents for almost a year and worked uh, worked from home, didn't work in my office. And uh, it actually, you know, and that was partially, and, and I think, again, there's been a lot written about this, but how families have coped and kind of the need for extended families and people have sort of reached out and relied on um, whatever supports that they can, can get during this time. Because I, again, I have two very young kids, like they're not school age yet. Um, mm-hmm. And so we needed help um, to figure that out. And in a way, you know, I think it's been in some ways odd because I, I feel like I've been talking to people and helping them sort of cope through all of this, but also I've gone through all of this too, right? Um, and so I think it's a real point of kind of empathy and connection and um, that we're all, nobody has not been affected. So yeah. Double double negative, but <laughs> uh, right, like... And, and so in some ways it's been, in some ways my work has been like a, a really large source of kind of comfort and connection for me um, and, and really feeling that um, I feel very grateful that I'm in a position that I can help people and, you know, provide something that's useful for some people or I hope it's useful. Yeah. Do you have any free advice you can offer just generally to people who might be going through this, like yeah. the feelings of anxiety or the feelings of isolation or just feeling overwhelmed, the grief? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So one of the things I talk a lot about is that um, recovery, but I think also you'd say you could view it as like recovery from grief. None of these processes are linear and they weren't designed, right? They're not supposed to be. So it's not that you're sad and frustrated and overwhelmed and and you're like on a linear trajectory to feeling whole and at peace and and calm again. It's it's this whole kind of meandering path and that being angry, being sad, uh, trying to find solutions. I mean, they're all parts of it and that you can be having multiple kind of grief reactions at the same time. So you can be angry and sad at the same time. It's a right, like it's not a sequential process. Um, It's more, I think, a multi-dimensional process. Um, The other thing is, um, right, I'm a psychiatrist, right? So I give people medication all the time. Um, And we talk a lot about brains and um, brain health. And I'm a big proponent of exercise. That would be my one bit of like free advice. And I know that when you are depressed, exercise is the absolute last thing that you want to do. You don't want to move. You don't want to do anything. It is, you know, research has clearly shown this. It is one of the very few things that we can do that actually changes our brain. 
Um, and uh, I and I I don't say it. I know that it's easier said than done. I don't say it lightly. I know that when people feel like crap, it's hard for them to get motivated. But my advice is do it anyway. Yeah. Do it even though you don't want to do it, and even though everything in you is screaming not to do it. Get outside and walk for 20 minutes. I say I say to people like I don't care what it is that you do. Jump up and down in a corner of your room. I don't care. Like move your body. Hopefully, do it outside if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it's 10 minutes, it can make a difference. Yeah, I I like that because I actually was just um, talking with a couple of my girlfriends, and I was saying, you know, I was feeling really crappy today, and I just didn't I just wanted to go home after work and lay on the couch and just watch like six hours of Netflix and then go to bed (laughs) and and I was like and I was like well my gym's open and I should go it's just an hour of my day right like I can watch five hours of Netflix instead of six but I really just wanted to lay on the couch and I was like so I did it and I feel like tenfold better after having, you know, like left the gym, just, you know, I wanted to go home and, you know, clean up something and, you know, be more productive. And I was just saying, mm-hmm. like, sometimes you just have to not ask yourself if you want to go to the gym. You just pull yourself there and you go. And um, and I can say, like, personally, I noticed that working out definitely makes a huge difference for me. So I echo that. Mental health is is a serious issue for our society. And so in your professional opinion, do you see some bias or some prejudice when we discuss the topic? Um, let's see, uh, let's see, I'm reading this question, but it's based on recent conversations with professionals like two psychiatrists, medical doctor, and their views on national shootings. Do you have mm. thoughts about that? Like, like with the shooters' mental health issues and like what that contributed, yeah. like what like gun control versus right. well, mental it's, health stuff. Yeah, because because oftentimes when when particular groups do it, they're terrorists. When a different group does it, mm-hmm. it's they're mental clear. health. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and yeah. and so and so how how does the uh, mental health community kind of look at this? Um, and and I know. You know, it's 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 really not a fair question because we don't expect you to represent all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the mental health community probably views it in all sorts of different ways. Um, I, in some ways, it gets it. Actually, I think some of the kind of core issues that have been brought up over the last year and a half, kind of to national consciousness about kind of. Uh, systemic racism and structural racism and access and uh, equity and access to resources. And um, I think the system is broken in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't know the solution to it. I'm, I'm, I wish I knew a solution to it, but I don't know the solution to it. But I do think that um, I think it's complicated and the gun control, the, the like, you know, mass shooters thing. I don't know that I can totally speak to because I think, um, it just gets so complicated so quickly. Um, I think that the, 
my take on it, and I think the general take of the psychiatric community is that if people have less access to guns, there are less shootings. And that that is like very uh, supported by data. And I'll, I'll caveat that with saying that I'm sure that there are people in the psychiatric community who don't necessarily take that tact. But for example, uh, suicides, one of the major risk factors for completed suicide in a home is it the presence of a firearm in the home. Oh. Right. Um, and so it, it's not even speaking to like Second Amendment stuff. I think it's more speaking about like gun safety um, and it kind of very uh, like really rigorous gun safety in the home if you choose to have a gun in the home. Uh, but it, data is very clear, right? If there's not a gun in the home, people can't shoot themselves. Um, and so in that way, the sort of, I think there is a real intersection between mental health and gun control. And, and I come at it from a safety perspective. And I think a lot of mental health providers come at it from a safety perspective. Um, but I think it also, the other main thing I think is access, access to quality mental health care. And, um, and there's a real, real problem with that. Yeah, I think, yep. I think you bring up a good point about access. And I think to uh, the question about, you know, the bias and the prejudice, uh, that might be an issue of systemic racism because people in poverty, higher numbers are people of different ethnicities and thus not having access to better health care. Um, and with that being, you know, mental health care. So, Yeah. Yeah, and I think it gets into this kind of questions about like, you know, there's kind of whole discussion around prison systems and yeah. mental health care and do people end up in prison systems when they should actually be ending up in mental health care systems right. and how do you kind of tease that out and appropriately address the problem and not uh, have sort of like not criminalize mental health yeah. issues for people. And again, I... I don't know the answer, um, but I certainly know that it's a problem. Um, yeah, it's certainly worth looking at and discussing more with more people than the three of us, right? Because yeah. we're not likely to be able to make a change, <laughs> although we can start a conversation about it. Right. That's right. So um, do you have any outlook predictions for the rest of the year on people's mental health? Is it getting better? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, so I, it's actually, it's funny. I was going to say I'm an optimist, but I'm not an optimist. I'm actually like quite a cynical person. Um, but in this situation, I do see some some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and part of that is A, because vaccines and the pandemic seems to be going in a direction where um, people can open up. But I also think that because this year has been so challenging for um, mental health, it has opened up the conversation in a way that uh, it wasn't opened up before. And I also think that people who maybe didn't have past experiences with depression and anxiety have now had experiences with depression and anxiety. And there's, I think, a real opportunity for more openness and less stigma and more compassion and more empathy and that to me is really hopeful. Um, yeah. yeah, that's good. Um, so 
since 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 I did share that 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 we do have some younger listeners, and in, in fact, I was talking to our new social social media intern who's a sophomore in high school, uh, mm-hmm. and she's thinking about psychology. Um, so so what would now now Sarah tell fourteen year old Sarah? Um, and so you know what. What would be some recommendations for for people that for high school students that are that are really looking at at a at a career within psychology? Yeah. Um, well, personally, I would tell fourteen year old Sarah to chill out. <laughs> yeah, you're just fourteen, right? You're fourteen. <laughs> yes. Um, I you know I'm. Uh, without too much self-disclosure, like kind of anxious by nature and um, was an anxious student and was one of those people that was sort of worried about figuring it all out. And um, I think one of the true things about life is that you cannot think your way out of problems or you can't think your way into figuring it out. You have to live your way into figuring it out. And so... I would tell 14-year-old Sarah to just just be in her life and do the best she can to try to be present and be kind to herself and gentle with herself. And, um, but you can't kind of sit in a room and figure your life out. You got to be out in the world living it. I love that. That could be a (laughs) t-shirt. No, because that's a... And, and Sarah, that's so, that's so true for not just, um, young people, but for older people, you know, that are, that are trying to think their way out without just like living their way through it. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a great piece of advice. Um, and so, so we're kind of closing down one of the things that that we always end our interviews with is asking our guests to share what their one call to action is so sarah what is your one call to action i'm trying to like think about how i want to say it in a concise way and it's going to sound trite and then i'm going to explain it Okay. <laughs> my my call to action would be to find kindness and tenderness. And what I mean by that is the past year has been so gnarly with divisiveness, with people being polarized and it's either this way or it's that way, or you believe me or you don't believe me or I, I don't mean believe me or don't believe me. I mean, like I, you're, just with politics and with the pandemic and, um, and I, and how hard the past year has been on individuals and families that to find some space to be kind to yourself and find some space to be kind to the people around you, even if you don't agree with them, that you do not have to necessarily agree with somebody to be kind and tender with them. Um, and that you can be kind and tender with yourself, even if you're not feeling well. Um, and I think those are two sort of antidotes to some of the difficulties that we've had in the past year. 
That's awesome. Those are both really excellent. When you said the recommendation to 14-year-old Sarah, I was like, that's kind of her call to action. I don't even know we need to yeah. say more. But <laughs> your, 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 you know, your final icing on the cake, uh, cherry on top, is also super good and thoughtful. And I, I think it really fits with all of the things that you're talking about of just taking care of the whole person mentally and physically and um, just allowing yourself to navigate through this sticky journey of feelings that aren't necessarily linear. So Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. I loved listening to you. I loved hearing your perspective and picking your brain. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Of course.